We are reading this morning of Jesus's triumphal entry, as it's known, into Jerusalem from the Gospel according to John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. Before we turn to God's holy and errant, infallible word, let us uh, ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, your word says that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this, your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, we pray. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting at verse 12. Hear now the word of God. It is written. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it curious that even in a post-Christian culture, such as the one in which we live in today, Jesus remains a figure who still draws much attention. We still frequently hear the name of Jesus invoked all around us, even today in a time when there is widespread rejection of God, people still flock to Jesus. They still go after him. Now, this doesn't mean that all who 
flock to Jesus are coming to him to receive the salvation he offers. Some come because they despise him and wish to disprove or discredit him. Others come because they find in him something strangely attractive, whether it is because of the miracles he was said to have worked or the things he taught. Yet others are coming seeking a salvation. The question is, though, what type of salvation are they seeking? And this passage presents us with those who are drawn to Jesus and some various reasons why they are drawn to Jesus. And we're challenged here to consider what group we are in amongst the larger crowd. And that's what I want to encourage you to think about as we reflect upon this familiar story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, we're probably all familiar with this story. Every year on this Sunday that we call Palm Sunday, we're reminded of this event that begins the final few days of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to his crucifixion. John's gospel presents this scene a little differently than we might be accustomed to, though. Uh, Perhaps you notice that there was no mention of Jesus sending two of his disciples to procure the donkey for him as he prepared to make his way into the city. And this isn't the only difference. If we were to put all the Gospels side by side, then we would notice that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, start their account with Jesus and his disciples coming from Bethany headed to Jerusalem. But John... John starts his account with the crowd coming out from Jerusalem to meet Jesus, who is coming from Bethany. Verses 12 and 13, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, it's important that we know what has just happened in this place that Jesus was coming from, Bethany. Uh, Immediately before the triumphal entry in John's gospel, we have the account of Mary anointing Jesus's feet with the pure nard, a a very, very expensive perfume. It's an act of devotion that Jesus relates to his impending death as an anointing for burial. Uh, This was the first eight chapters or eight verses of chapter 12. But we're reminded, if we look back in the very first verse of this chapter, that Jesus had been in Bethany in the the previous chapter. Chapter 12 begins like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus had come to Bethany upon receiving word that his dear friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had died. And we remember that Jesus went and declared himself there to be the resurrection and the life. And there he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus, so as Jesus now comes to Jerusalem, we are told that a large crowd has come out to meet him. And this large crowd was made up of several groups of people who are all there for different reasons. And we see this more clearly in John's gospel than the others. Traveling with Jesus, of course, were his disciples. And perhaps also with them was a crowd of others who had been following Jesus since Jericho, where he had healed two blind men, as attested to in Matthew's gospel. They make up part of the large crowd that 
was surrounding Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. But, but what about those who were coming up from Jerusalem? Well, a significant portion of this group were there because they were curious about Jesus, because they had heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. This is what the text points to. They wanted to come and gawk at Lazarus and this one who had raised him from the dead. John tells us this in verse 9. But there was another group as well, a group who had more malicious intentions. This group was also mentioned in these preceding verses, 9 through 11. They were those religious leaders who were looking for Jesus to put him to death. There had been an active plot emerging to kill Jesus, and we see that reflected in our passage this morning as Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem provoked the advancement of this plot. This is what's happening in verse 19 with the Pharisees acknowledging that Jesus is only gaining popularity, thus necessitating a speedier execution. And we're told in the preceding verses that this group was also plotting to kill Lazarus along with Jesus since the resurrection of Lazarus was drawing people to Jesus. And finally, there were the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. A Passover was a feast that caused the population of Jerusalem to swell enormously. The, the normal population of Jerusalem was, in that time, uh, between forty and 60,000. There are estimates, though, that the number of people in Jerusalem grew during the Passover anywhere from a couple hundred thousand people to a couple million. More than likely, it was on the lower end of that. But regardless, there were a lot of people who had traveled to Jerusalem from all over to celebrate Passover. And we see, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, the crowd was chanting the words of Psalm 118. This is one of the Psalms of Ascents, a group of Psalms used by pilgrims coming up to Jerusalem. So this was an entirely appropriate and normal thing to do in one sense. But what is happening here is entirely unique in another sense because the psalm isn't simply being used to welcome pilgrims into Jerusalem. It's being applied to Jesus. And we have to consider the meaning of this. Hosanna, the people shout. It means save or help. And the way the psalm was used carried two different meanings. It was used as both a shout of praise and as a prayer request. It could be used to praise God, God saves us, or it could be used to pray, God save us. And perhaps not surprising in our context here, a form of this word could be used to address the king with a need. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 4, with a woman from Tekoa who was crying out to David, save me, O king. And so when this psalm was being chanted by these crowds around Jesus, as the crowds waved palm branches before him, we begin to understand a little of what these crowds were wanting and expecting of Jesus. You see, the palms represented Israel's national hopes. As one commentator points out, when the temple was rededicated during the Maccabean era, palms were used in the celebration. During both major wars with Rome, reliefs of palms were stamped on the coins minted by the rebels. And so what were the palms used for? 
Pastor John has already stated this. They were, in essence, the Hebrew national flag. Now, I have been present for several presidential parades in my lifetime, and at each one, I witnessed people lining the streets, waving American flags. This is what we do when we welcome a president or a king. And this is what is happening here. But remember, Jerusalem was under the control of the Romans. And these were not Roman flags, so these were rebel flags, right? What we are seeing represented here is national fervor in the face of an oppressive Roman occupation. And now the picture comes into clear focus for us. This was a parade welcoming one who whom they understood to be the mighty ruler, the messianic liberator, come to deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. This parade was demonstrating a nationalistic hope. They had taken this messianic psalm, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they waved, as they waved palm branches before Jesus, they added a statement, the king of Israel. This is who many in the crowd wanted Jesus to be. They were wanting to make Jesus king. The people were looking for salvation. But it was salvation from Rome. And we have already seen the crowds attempting to do this earlier in John's gospel after Jesus fed the 5,000. John chapter 6, verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, Jesus, by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. People saw in Jesus something. They saw one who was powerful and wise, and they they placed their expectations on him. But Jesus had resisted this before with the smaller crowds. He, He had resisted the attempts to make him king. But what happens here? Well, he didn't openly resist as he had before. He didn't sneak off. Instead, he mounted a donkey. And we notice that John presents this situation a little differently than the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, we have the account that we are familiar with. Jesus had seemingly prearranged the use of this donkey. In John's gospel, though, Jesus is said to have found a young donkey and sat on it only after the parade had begun and with the chance of him being the king of Israel growing louder. But don't misunderstand here. John is not presenting to us a contrary account. John is trying to say that this happened He isn't trying to say that this happened any other way than what the other Gospels have testified. Certainly, as the other Gospels gave witness, the disciples had secured the donkey for Jesus as he had instructed them to do, and Jesus had mounted the donkey when it was brought to him. But John is noting that this occurred after these crowds had already begun expressing their desire to make Jesus king. We can picture how Jesus was already making his way to Jerusalem when the disciples arrived with this donkey. And amidst the loud hosannas and the the waving of palm branches, Jesus found the timing appropriate to get upon this donkey and to ride the rest of the way. And this serves to present it in a way as to emphasize 
the reaction of Jesus to these mistaken calls to make him king. Jesus is communicating something by not coming into the city on a war horse. It not only fulfills Zechariah's prophecy, it also corrects the type of king that Jesus is and would be. He wasn't coming to make war with the Romans. He was coming to bring peace. And he was coming to bring peace through offering himself as a perfect sacrifice. And this is what the donkey symbolized, humility and peace. Now, up until this point, Jesus had not only resisted being made king, but also allowing his ministry to be a public spectacle. At several previous points in John's gospel, in chapters 2 and 7 and 8, we find stated that Jesus' hour had not yet come, meaning that it wasn't yet time for it to be revealed who he truly was and for the true purpose for which he had come to find its culmination. But here, something changes. Even as he resists this idea that he will be the king people want him to be, we find him doing something that has not been seen before. He comes parading into Jerusalem in a very public, albeit strange sort of way. And what is the first thing John records Jesus saying in Jerusalem? Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Another way to translate this is, it has arrived. The time for his work to be completed had come. The the verb here is in the perfect tense, which signified consummation. And perhaps we should pay attention to the fact that it mirrors the final words that Jesus records, Jesus saying from the cross, it is finished. These two statements, it has arrived, and it is finished, bookend this final week of his life. We are seeing here the beginning of the end of his work. He is coming out into the open about who he is and what he has come to do, and this revelation will bring a clear division in who is coming to him to receive him as he truly is and who is coming and trying to make him something that he is not. We all know where it's headed. He he came to Jerusalem for one purpose. He came there to die. And and John wants to make that perfectly clear here in the triumphal entry account. So the triumphal entry in John's gospel serves a, a different purpose than it does in the other gospels. You see, John's gospel is divided up into two parts known as the book of signs and the book of glory. And the book of signs is just as it sounds. It's a record of the miraculous signs that Jesus did, which point to who he is. And these signs had caused Jesus to to have quite a following like he has here. But here in chapter 12, we see a dramatic shift, which serves as a turning point in the gospel. It's, It's the hinge on which the gospel of John turns as the transition is made from the book of signs to the book of glory. Jesus acknowledged here that his hour had come. It was the hour of glory. But what we find is that his hour of glory would be an hour of agony, which was not something the crowds were anticipating. Jesus is a king. But he wasn't coming to Jerusalem for a coronation. He was coming for crucifixion. 
The only crown that would be placed on his head in the days to come would be a crown of thorns. The only purple robe which would cover him would be placed there to mock him between his beating and being nailed to a cross. The way to his exaltation would be through humiliation. Jesus comes to his throne through his suffering and death. And this is what Jesus communicates to his disciples here when Andrew and Philip tell Jesus that there are Greeks who are seeking him. Certainly, these Greeks had come to the city to celebrate Passover. Uh, This is yet another group who proclaims, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And there is no indication that Jesus did meet with them, although it reveals that Jesus had come to be more than just king of the Jews. He came to be king over all nations. But here's how Jesus responds to Andrew and Philip, verses 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus presents here what he must do. And it wasn't something that even the disciples understood until it had happened. Even they did not understand how the path of exaltation for Jesus would be through humiliation, through death. John tells us in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They they didn't understand why he rode a donkey into the city. They didn't understand why he was talking about a grain of wheat falling to the earth and dying in order to bear much fruit. They didn't understand until after he was glorified. And this glorification happens on the cross. This is what the second book of John's gospel is about, the the book of glory. It is about his saving death and his victorious resurrection. And the cross is how Jesus glorifies his heavenly father and how his heavenly father is glorified through him. Jesus would be lifted up. He would be exalted, how? On a cross. Death would be defeated through death. This is how life would be gained through his suffering and death. He was referring to himself when he spoke of the grain that must fall to the earth and die to produce much fruit, but Jesus wasn't just presenting here the path he would take to glory. He was also presenting the path that all must follow if they would truly have him and the benefits he brings, if they would have him as he reveals himself to be and as he truly is. So listen again to what Jesus says here. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It is whoever and anyone that Jesus speaks of here. Jesus is making no exceptions. This is the path for all who truly wish to receive what Jesus offers. The path to gain life is to lose it. If you want the crown of life, you must bear the cross of death. The path 
to being exalted with Christ is being humbled by dying on the cross with him. So do you see what John has done for us here? There are still crowds around Jesus even today. There are many who are attracted to him, who flock to him, who come desiring to see him, who are looking to get a hold of him in some way, but there are many among the crowd who aren't looking to receive him as he offers himself. There are those who are drawn to him for being a miracle worker. They like to to hang around to see what incredible thing he might do next. And there are those who are wanting him to provide them with their perceived needs and to fulfill their heart's every desire. But dearly beloved, Jesus did not come to entertain us or, or merely to provide for us some moral example or simply to heal us of our worldly woes or to deliver us from our worldly burdens. Jesus didn't come that we might be comfortable, wealthy, healthy, without suffering in this life. No, he came to provide a salvation from sin and death. He came to deliver us from our bondage to the flesh the world, and the devil. This, this is actually what he will proclaim in a few verses. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He came that we might be free from Satan's power because we are helpless otherwise. But we might have our own ideas of what we want Jesus to be about what it means that he is king. We might have our own ideas about what our salvation should look like, about how we would like to be saved. We like to tell Jesus how to save us. But this is not how it works. So how many among the crowd are truly coming to him to find true salvation? How many are truly coming to him to find forgiveness of sin and newness of life? And it It sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds nice to say that we have been forgiven of our sins by Jesus until we look at what it takes for our sins to be forgiven in Jesus. Until we gaze upon the horror of the cross and we see there the judgment of God poured out on his sinless son who was bearing all of our sins in his body on that tree. Our sins are not a trivial thing to God. Oh, but we would like to simply sweep them under a rug. There was a tremendous cost that had to be paid for forgiveness to be freely offered. There was intense humiliation before there was exaltation. And we might not be so sure that we want our sins to be crucified. We might actually like our sins. We might even identify ourselves with our sins. We might not actually be so willing to give those sins to Jesus in order that they might be put to death. So even as we might come to Jesus and cry out, Lord, please save us, we don't particularly like how God goes about saving us. We don't like it because it demonstrates God's judgment on our sins. It it shows to us the sinfulness of our sin, and it shows to us God's just and necessary response to our sin. And... It requires us to humbly submit ourselves to God. This means we must die to ourselves. We must 
allow our sins to be put to death and we must cast ourselves upon God's mercy. We must follow Jesus to the cross and there we must die with him. Jesus isn't looking for fans. He is looking for followers. And if we would follow Christ, we must deny all self-sufficiency and look to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the one who stands in our place, the only one who can stand in our place and bear the penalty of our sins. He alone is our atoning sacrifice. And we must lay before him all of our pride, all of our self-seeking glory, and we must find our glory in the cross of Christ alone. But if all who come to Jesus are honest, that isn't necessarily what they were wanting. We want God to fix the mess of our lives. We want God to fix the mess of this world. We want him to remove the pain and suffering. But we want him to do it in a way that allows us to live comfortably in our sin. We want glory without humiliation. We want life without death. But there is no new life without abandoning the the old one. Our, our life of living for ourselves, of living in rebellion to God, of living according to the ways of the flesh, that must come to an end and be replaced with a life that fully submits to Jesus Christ as Lord. Our life of finding its satisfaction in the things of this world must be traded for a life that finds satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. And perhaps we realize that there are many who don't really want what Jesus is offering because it requires too much of them. As J.C. Ryle states, he that would be saved must be ready to give up life itself, if necessary, in order to obtain salvation. He must bury his love of the world with its riches, honors, pleasures, and rewards with a full belief that in doing so he will reap a better harvest. He who loves the life that now is so much that he cannot deny himself anything for the sake of his soul will find at length that he has lost everything. He, on the contrary, who is ready to cast away everything most dear to him in this life, if it stands in the way of his soul, and to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts, will find at length that he is no loser. In a word, he loses, his losses will prove nothing in comparison to his gains. So how about you? Jesus isn't offering a cross-less Christianity. But he is offering the free gift of God's grace, salvation, eternal life to all who humbly come to him, repent of their sins and believe on his name. I don't know what has attracted you to Jesus today, why you make up part of this crowd this morning. But I want to encourage you to see Jesus for who he truly is and receive him as such. And if you haven't done that yet, the day of decision is today. The day of salvation is here. There might not be another opportunity. Repent and believe in Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father,
We thank you for your word, which gives witness to who you are in your son, Jesus Christ. And we see this morning, and we will see in the days ahead, that his exaltation to king, to ruler over all things, comes by way of his humble submission to death, even death on a cross. Lord, he did this for the joy that was set before him. Heavenly Father, help us to follow Christ to the cross and, the, and there to present before Christ the only thing we have to offer, our sin. Lord, that it might be crucified there, that we might receive new life there, and Lord, help us to follow Christ all the days of our life. Help us to repent continually and to believe in Christ, looking to him as the only true atonement. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand in Proclaim what we believe using the Philippian Creed. <clears throat> Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he 